Claire Gakdena, Fulcher and Shut A Pot Still Radio. Is Misha Maya Haley and Gioni, August New, Thomas Shakmashak Freshen, Dundara Hectra Daygron Quarantine Pot Still Radio. A new Tommy Labunator Origin Spirits, Mr. Patrick Shelley. So Fulcher and Shut A Patrick. Hi Matt, nice to be with you. Lovely to be with you over the internet. Before we get kicked off, I do want to say a big shout out to our sponsors. The PX Series Single Malt Whiskies Gently Finished in Cherry Casks by W.D. O'Connell Whiskey Merchants, a different kind of Irish. Follow W.D. O'Connell Whiskies across all platforms or visit wdoconnell.com for more details. And what's your treat this week? Why not enjoy a Cloen 10-year-old cast-strength whiskey or a delicious flame-fed pot-stilled puchine? All available online, check out cloendistillery.com for more information. And of course, irishmalts.com, who have the latest and greatest Irish whiskies, gins, puchines delivered straight to your door. Visit irishmalts.com to browse their full range, which does include the W.D. O'Connell PX Series whiskies, the Cologne Cast Strength and Puchines, as well as, of course, the Carrick whiskies. So, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on what is the second of the quarantine episodes of uh, Potstilled Radio. I know that you are joining us not from your usual haunts in Paris, or but I believe you're in Tipperary today. I am indeed. And you found yourself back, um, is it due to our current scenarios in the world, or was it more of a planned uh, a retreat back to... Uh, uh, certainly, yeah. It certainly wasn't planned, Matt. I was supposed to return to Paris on the 17th of March, and from then I was actually supposed to be this week in Japan and Singapore. Oh yes, Provine. Uh, I suppose Provine Asia was a was meant to be a big one that could have stepping stone out from there as well. I'm sure you were probably looking towards that as well. Exactly. I, I wasn't actually going to Provine, but um, I was there to kind of help our our local partner in Singapore, and where we're just about to launch and then go on to Japan. So that's obviously all come to. Uh, a standstill for the moment. I was going to say a grinding halt. Yes. Yes. Um, we had our first episode with Louise Mguan from uh, JJ Corey, and I believe she was meant to be on a very similar trip to yourself in uh, a Singapore, Japan direction, which is all cancelled at the moment. And funnily enough, you say that uh, in my work schedule right now, I'm also most, uh, supposed to be in Japan. Um, oh, really? Uh, yeah. All coincidentally and all, all cancelled, of course. So, Patrick, for those people who are listening at home that don't know... Uh, origin spirit to yourself could you introduce yourself and i suppose kind of your background in the drinks industry and kind of in your your foray into the irish drinks industry as well sure um i think to start with i've been in the um the drinks industry for just about 20 years now i actually started with a, a large international luxury goods group called lvmh moy tennessee i was obviously on the wine and spirit side of the business. I started actually looking after, my first role was actually looking after Hennessy Cognac in Central Eastern Europe. Then I managed the, the champagne portfolio, so that being Moy Chandon, Don Perignon, Clicquot in Asia. I then came back to Europe to manage a, the international business for a niche champagne brand called Runart. And then finally, I was sent to Russia to open a subsidiary for the group there. And that's a kind of a nice little lead in to why we're all here today, because for people who know Russia and they think of alcohol, they think of vodka. And I remember going out, you know, in in Moscow with friends and everybody was doing vodka shots. I was probably the only one 
drinking whiskey or drinking a nice glass of red wine. And to be honest, I couldn't really see the point of drinking vodka. And even when I came back to Ireland, a lot of my friends and family were drinking vodka. So I said to myself, there, there has to be more to vodka than meets the eye. And I also wondered, would it be possible to replicate everything I adore in whiskey or in good wines or even cognac or Calvados, et cetera? That being, you know, spirits with, uh, or wines with a lot of complexity, depth, character. And I suppose I was just bored by the fact of what vodka was, just being a neutral spirit. So that's where the challenge started, Matt. And I'll be perfectly honest, initially, it was really just a personal challenge to see if I could do something. It was far from a business plan at that stage. It was more out of intrigue than anything else. And my, my thinking was that if I could create um, a vodka that I could like, then maybe other people would like it too. And that's really where the whole ethos of origin spirit started, because I suppose from the backdrop of my, my, my past, my experience with Moe Tennessee, I was very conscious of doing something authentic, using Irish ingredients, of using Ireland's uh, tradition, uh, know-how and distillation and making, making alcoholic beverages. So I think that's where the whole idea, that's, that's where everything kind of came together. Um, as you know, you know, Ireland has, is reputed to have some of the best malted barley in the world. And uh, it's, it was very rare because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, you're perfectly, you know, your listeners will, when they, when they hear the, the word malted barley, they think of whiskey. It was never kind of used to, to make a vodka like we were making, nor was that vodka ever distilled on a pot still using Irish malted barley. So it was really, I suppose, taking the concept of what we're good at in Ireland in, in brewing and distilling whiskey and trying to apply the same approach to making a white spirit. So that's where it all started. We partnered with the, the guys down in West Cork distillers, John, Ger, and Din. Uh, they were incredible from day one. Um, a lot of people kind of thought I was crazy trying to create a, a vodka from malted barley and, and pot distilling. Um, they saw it more as a challenge, something that hadn't been done before. So we got great support uh, from them initially. And that's where it all started. The one thing I was really happy about, say, a year into the journey, Matt, was um, particularly when we launched in the US, the brand name I should have mentioned, excuse me, I, I always forget the most important. <laughs> But the brand name is Kalak, uh, Single Malt Vodka. And when Kalak launched in the US, uh, quite soon afterwards, it started getting the reputation as the whiskey drinkers vodka. And that's exactly where I wanted to see it positioned. The thing about Kalak is it's probably one of the only single malt vodkas in the world. I don't need to explain to your listeners what single malt means. I think they're probably better briefed than I am. But I think that's what makes it uh, unique it gives it that, I think, that point of difference that people can associate with. Um, it's also an accurate description of what the product is and how it's made. We did have a little bit of trouble, I'll be honest with you, getting it through the Department of Agriculture at the time. But uh, let's say with a lot of persistence and determination, we, we got there in the end. You got to love bureaucracy. So, so basically, Calic Vodka is essentially 100% malted barley distilled. Uh, 
for, forgive me for not knowing, four to five times perhaps in the pot still? Yes. It's, so basically the uh, it's it's made from 100, uh, 100% Irish malted barley, pre predominantly from the southeast. We buy it through West Cork distillers from Cork, Cork Malting Company in Togar in Cork. And <clears throat> then it's milled, mashed, fermented, and four times copper pot distilled in, in West Cork in Skibbereen. And then do you have to have a particular filtration for Yes, we, we, we spent months trying to get the top, the proper filtration system. What we wanted to do, we didn't want to take flavor out. We simply just wanted to polish the spirit and take out any kind of visible impurities from it. So we discovered that, you know, by slow filtration, simply by allowing gravity to, to filter through activated carbon, that it was the softest or the most elegant way to actually achieve the, uh, the to achieve the result. And what I didn't mention is that, and it's funny, we're here today talking later about whiskey, because a lot of my friends are, used to say to me, uh, Patrick, when is Calac going to be ready? And I said, oh, probably in another six months, not having an, a clue when it was going to be ready. But it actually took us close to three years to get it right. So we could technically have made a whiskey in the period it took us to make Calac, you know. Uh, we had a lot, apart from the guys in West Cork, we had some really good guys on board helping. We had Dr. Jim Swan, ex-Cavalan Penderin, uh, we had a guy called Ian Wisniewski, who was one of the leading vodka and gin experts in Europe. And then we had a consultant from Galway, uh, Roy Court, who's ex-Middleton. So we really had a good team of people on board. Um, and I think because it's always easy to follow when something is already there. I think when you're trying to create something and there's no rule book, that's where it gets a little bit more challenging. But that's what that's what I'm proud of, because that to me is what innovation is all about. Yeah, it's different being the first mover in a category. Yes. And I think that leads on nicely to I was also getting a lot of questions, maybe even a year into Calac's uh, launch. So, Patrick, what, what are you going to do next? Are you going to do a flavored vodka? And I thought a lot about it. And unfortunately, a lot of the typical flavored vodkas you find around the world with lemon or passion fruit or oranges, we just don't grow them in Ireland. And again, I was really fixed on the, the point of actually using what we have in Ireland, you know, cultivating the Irish terroir, using the Irish terroir, but also a little wink to the whiskey world. Um, and because I'm a big, big fan of uh, peated uh, scotch. Uh, I said, why don't we try something with, with peat? So our second product was Calac peat cask single malt vodka. So essentially what we're doing is we're using the same base. So for Calac, we then take uh, virgin American oak casks, which we get from the Kelvin Cooperage in Kentucky, uh, via West Cork Distillers, of course. And then we char the interior of the, of the cask over a fire with Irish peat. We then add, add Calac and let it finish for four months. What, what I, I think what the objective with this mat was not to replicate a, a peated scotch or a peated whiskey. It was almost to take the, the elements which we find so beautiful about Calac and that malt influence, that lovely creamy, biscuity, pastry nose, little hints of dark chocolate, 
but also bringing that other element of that kind of darker smoke, the, the wood effect, uh, little touches of caramel from, from the oak as well, and to create something that was quite, quite balanced, so not overpowering, not a peat bomb as such. And I, I find a lot of our consumers, they do get, uh, you know, even on a blind tasting, they can pick up that it's Calac, uh, that there is a link between the two. And the actual name Calac, there's any, I know if you say it, I suppose, out loud, Calac would be very similar to the Irish on Calac being being mm-hmm. a witch. And I've always wondered with the, the nice kind of uh, symbology going through the Calac uh, logo of kind of, I don't know if it's a, a branch or a staff, was there, was there, what was the idea behind the name of the brand? Yeah, you're, 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 you're spot on. Uh, Calac is a phonetic um, spelling of the Irish word Calac. But it's, it's interesting, us even having that conversation, how to pronounce it. You can imagine somebody in Kentucky or in Tokyo, how are they going to pronounce it? Exactly. So we took a bit of artistic license in, in you know, how, how we spell it. But essentially what Calac, and let's call her Calac for now on, so we, we don't get, have any confusion. Calac was a Celtic goddess. She was also the queen of winter. Uh, she was almost a symbol of Mother Nature to the Celts. And there's a really nice story, uh, which is depicted on our bottle. At the end of every autumn, she had this staff, this tall staff with an antler on top. And she hit the ground with the staff at the end of every autumn. The ground froze and winter arrived. So then she came into her own uh, protecting animals and crops during winter. And then at the end of winter, uh, she transformed to stone. So if you look at the label, it's in the shape of a Celtic oam stone. And a lot of people say, oh, uh, you know, what are those marks around these little notches on the side of the label? They think is that was the paper ripped or something. That's actually Calac written in oam. Or as I like to say abroad, where people don't have a clue what oam is, I like to say it's uh, this is our this is Celtic hieroglyphics. This was our language before the Latin language came. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to steal that because you don't know this and this is a terrible medium for audio, but I'm going to hold up my inner inner bicep and I have, oh. <laughs> I have a tattoo of my inner bicep and the tea I've had living in the United States before I moved back to Ireland. People are like, what's that? And I'm like, God, how do I explain home to people that don't know what home is? So I like Celtic hieroglyphics. I'm stealing it. What does yours say, Matt? Uh, mine is my last name in Irish. Yeah, I, I, I made it my last name because I wanted a tattoo. I wanted it to be something that was inherently Irish. Um, I didn't want it to be tacky, but I also wanted it to be family because I knew my parents would kill me if I came home with a tattoo. So this was kind of a halfway house that allowed them to be a little okay with it. <laughs> so they only didn't talk to me for about a week where it would have been a month otherwise. So it was a, they were all right with it in the end. <laughs> I don't know. I no, it's a great, it's a great symbol. So when you went from your Calic vodka, then what was the kind of, you've done the single malt vodka, the peated single malt vodka. What was the kind of next evolution of origin spirits? The next evolution or the next uh, stage was a single malt gin. And this is interesting because people who know me still remind me that I've said on numerous occasions over my dead body, will I do a gin? And yeah, here we are. I think the reason my reluctance initially, Matt, was for one particular reason. 
I felt that there was a lot of gins at the time, even two years ago. It's doubled or trebled since. And I just didn't feel we could create something that would have that same level of uniqueness that we do with our single malt vodka. Um, the other interesting thing was, I think when people talk about gin, they talk about botanicals. Botanicals really only represent between say five and 7% of the finished product. So essentially you have between uh, 93 and 95% of what's in the bottle composed of base spirit. Nobody talks about the base spirit because generally in I'd say over 90% of cases, it's a neutral grain spirit, you know, distilled on column stills, um, often from corn or uh, wheat. And because it's distilled on a column still, um, it doesn't have that same level of complexity of flavor than you would get that you would get from distilling on a, on a pot still. So we did an experiment. We said, look, why don't we, we actually have probably one of the most interesting base spirits in, in our own kind of repertoire uh, with Calac. So why don't we actually use Calac as the base for our gin? And to be honest, that's where the problem started. <laughs> because if had we been using a very neutral spirit, you can imagine almost like a, an artist's canvas and you say, OK, I like this red or that orange or that green. They're perfect there. It's a blank canvas, so you can really kind of put anything you want on it. You can't do that when you have a spirit, a single malt spirit, because there's so much flavor in that base spirit. So we almost went out interviewing botanicals to see how they would actually get on with the base. And there was a lot of botanicals that we, we really wanted to use, but they were just a disaster. You know, um, one of them um, was the orris root, which is very typical in gin. And we still can't figure out what happened, whether it was this clash with the malt or the uh, angelica, uh, but there was something not nice happening. So we really paired it back and we wanted almost to celebrate the, the flavor and the complexity of the base with the a very selected number of botanicals that would work with that base and, and create a gin experience. So the five botanicals we're using uh, are juniper berry, obviously, um, angelica root. Um, then we're using some lemon verbena, a little bit of lemon peel. And the one thing I'm really proud of is we're using pine needles from West Cork. So the name of our gin is called Ornabrack. And you'll recognize immediately, Matt, from, you know, as, a, as, a, as an Irish speaker, it comes from the Irish word uh, ornabraca, you know, meaning malted barley. So again, we took a little bit of the artistic license, as we did with Calac, to shorten it to something that's pronounceable uh, around the world. Pretty phonetically spelled as well. Like yes. When you, when you look at the label, it's easy to rattle off ornabrack. Yes, it is. Um, so we're, we're, we're really proud of the gin and... It's interestingly in the last few months, uh, you know, a lot of our export markets are doing incredibly well with it. Um, again, against the backdrop of an oversupply of gin in the market. But we're finding that, you know, particularly like Calac attracts whiskey drinkers because of that single malt, malted barley base. We're also finding whiskey drinkers kind of moving to Ornabrack because it gives that level of complexity that is not always uh, present in a gin. Personally, I love to drink uh, Ornabrack straight out of a tumbler glass. 
you know, with I think it's got the, the malt gives it that length that uh, on the back of the palate, which uh, again is is quite unusual in a gin. So we were we were very we felt it was uh, first of all we didn't want to create Calac for me is all about our single malt vodka. It's a different environment. It's different. Uh, you know, we've created this uh, brand which reflects what the product is. Uh, we didn't want to use that same brand under our gin. We wanted to create a new identity and give it its own space within within the portfolio. So at that stage, we had three products. Then one thing which was always on the back of my mind, and I wouldn't say it was the end game from, from day one, was to do a whiskey. And to be honest, we, we faced the exact same challenge with whiskey because we just didn't want to create another whiskey and just remember i think what we've created up to now we've got three very unique products uh two single malt vodkas and a single malt gin which have that that level of differentiation um not only in ireland but internationally i've always tried not to fly the irish flag too overtly uh, because I believe, you know, a product needs to stand on its own two feet. The product needs to be judged on its own product quality. And then, of course, if you communicate that it's Irish, that's for me is the cherry on the cake. So, but I think it's an important distinction for me. So again, looking at the, the whole whiskey world, um, and as, as you and your listeners know, there's been almost every type of, uh, of, of cask finish. I, we just felt that okay, we could find a quirky kind of old wine cask somewhere or another spirit, but is it really going to make something that's uh, that that different? Um, and again, I, th I think really at the backdrop of everything we're trying to do, Matt, is, is, is take an avant-garde approach to the industry, to be innovative, to be hopefully thinking outside the box. And... Um, Again, one of the, the, the one of the kind of guiding principles which kind of influenced us on whiskey was again, what can we use not only imported, but what can we use from our own backyard, uh, from our own land, from our own terroir, if you want to call it. And there's one thing I was always fascinated by was the sea. And I think it's principally because as an island nation, we're really defined by the sea. It's created who we are. It's created that character it's of, of Ireland. Um, it's created a certain outlook. It's created this, this pioneering innovator uh, characteristic that the Irish are so well known for. And that was more, more a necessity than a desire because as an island, you had to get off uh, to, to, to expand. <laughs> And for me, when I look at the sea, and if you if you look at the, you know, what when we're, I was trying to find this kind of, um, how could we create a whiskey using the same approach we take into our other products? Um, so it was very much what element of the Irish land or terroir could we use? And I think one of the most beautiful terroirs we have is the sea, and the the most beautiful part growing from the sea and particularly that touches our land is seaweed and we said look why don't we try something with seaweed we hadn't a, we hadn't a clue really of what was lying ahead and my idea initially uh, with Stephen was to see if we could bring in this seaweed influence into the cask 
risk without creating an overpowering seaweed kind of sea bomb. I remember initially through the what I call the house R&D before we did even went to our West Cork distillers. Uh, I nearly got into serious trouble one day on my um, terrace in, in Paris because on the barbecue, I had these foil dishes with uh, where I was burning wooden chips and then I was roasting the seaweed on top of it. But one of them, I turned my eyes for a minute and the, the plant next door to me, which with, with the plant on my plot, which was... Uh, admittedly hadn't been watered a lot recently, so it was quite dry. It caught flames and suddenly the whole bush and part of our neighbor's fence was kind of going up and going up in flames. So I think I learned one thing there is that, um, okay, it's good to experiment, uh, but uh, leave the R&D to professionals, you know. <laughs> so re really what I wanted to do, uh, joking aside, what I was really after here was to see how the impact of, of burning seaweed or roasting seaweed would have on the oak. And then what I was doing was I was taking those oak, chip, oak chips and placing them into containers of single malt whiskey and coming back every week up to a couple of months to see what the development was. We tried a number of different types of seaweed and it was really, really interesting, the different flavors you were getting from the same base and the same technique, but using different seaweed. So we then back, went back to the guys in West Cork and uh, we looked at different ways of how we could bring this uh, seaweed influence into the cask. There's one thing I want to make very clear is we weren't looking to char the cask with seaweed. We really want to allow the smoke from the seaweed infuse into the into the oak. So that took a lot of trial and error in that what we were doing is we're actually using three, two and a half kilos of seaweed per cask. We're putting it in in 500 gram lots um, burning it, then sealing the cask, allowing the smoke to infuse, rolling the cask opening the cask, putting another 500 grams in and repeating the same. So your listeners might know that, you know, charring a cask can be very quick. It can take up to 20 seconds, depending on, you know, the level of charring you want to do. In our case, we were, it took per cask almost 25 minutes per cask because there was five different steps of the uh, smoking the wood. So then what we did is we took um, a single malt uh, Irish whiskey um, made in West Cork distillers, distilled in West Cork distillers, which uh, is obviously ex-bourbon cask. And then we filled these seaweed smoke-infused virgin oak casks uh, with this single malt spirit and left it for three months. Again, we, we, we didn't really know what we were doing at the beginning. Uh, we kind of felt it could work. The first month, to be perfectly honest, um, I think Stephen and I were a little bit disappointed. Not disappointed, but we were saying, okay, yeah, it's interesting, but we were expecting a little bit more. The second month, we tried it, it was, hmm, there's definitely something there. This is going in the right direction. And then the third month, we said, wow, that's it. 
we actually left it a fourth month. But it's, it's very interesting what happened in the fourth month. We felt that in the fourth month, the cask, the, the actual smoke uh, from the wood had been expended in the, in the single malt whiskey. So there was no more of that aroma element coming in. And instead, it was picking up more of the natural wood flavors. So the cask so we were getting powering the smoke, yeah. essentially. Exactly. So we felt three months was the optimal uh, period to do that. Uh, I just want to say a word about the seaweed because, um, again, like we're really proud of the fact we're using only Irish malted barley uh, for Calac and Ornerbrack. We're using only, you know, Irish uh, peat from West Cork for our peat cask. Uh, the seaweed actually in our single malt whiskey comes from the west coast of Clare. It's organic, it's sustainably harvested, and it's produced by a very well-known family of seaweed farmers in the West, uh, the Talti family. And the quality is just exceptional. Um, in our case, what we, for our first uh, whiskey, uh, first expression, we're using Atlantic kombu kelp. And what's lovely with kombu is that once it's roasted, it brings out these lovely... Um, it gives these kind of dark uh, roasted coffee, choc dark chocolate, nutty, almost um, uh, salted caramel. <clears throat> so really, really interesting uh, kind of flavors just from the seaweed itself. And above all, and this is what we were after from day one, is this umami element, this delicate, elegant salinity, which you find in seaweed. We thought that, you know, because the one thing we love that people love about Irish whiskey around the world, I think, uh, particularly single malt, is that lovely, delicate sweetness you get. And we felt that that little touch of uh, salinity or bringing that umami, as the Japanese call it, this umami element into it could, could create this really interesting balance between, on one end, the light sweetness of the single malt and then that salinity of the seaweed plus all the other flavors uh, combining between the two. So our, our whiskey is actually called Curac, after the, uh, the traditional Irish boat. And there's also a nice story there as to why. Remember I was talking earlier about Ireland being an island nation and where I think Ireland made its impact on the world was not so much in Ireland, but outside Ireland. And I think the whole story started, you know, just after the fall of the, the Roman Empire, where there was this vacuum of uh, learning and uh, teaching and culture in Europe. And interestingly, the Irish monks took up the mantle and uh, actually Ireland became one of the most visited places in Europe for learning, you know, whether it was philosophy or uh, but even languages like Greek and Roman people were coming all over Europe to, to study in Ireland. So I think what happened is that then the Irish monks decided, okay, we're onto a good thing here. And, you know, typical Irish innovation, uh, let's try and bring this abroad. So they started traveling all over Europe to bring this knowledge. And they were traveling, the, which was the only boat, uh, boat at the time was the Curragh. So they were actually traveling, you know, in the fifth, sixth century in a Curragh to as far as Greece. The Karak actually has been around apparently since the Neolithic times. It's probably one of the oldest documented boats in the world. And I think bringing it back to why we're here today, 
And again, allegedly, it was the Irish monks that discovered the alambic or the pot still in Greece. So when they, what we like to say is that the Irish monks at the time, they exported knowledge, but they imported innovation. And one of the most, I think, apt parts of innovation as to why we're all here today is the alambic that they brought back. Basis of all distillation for alcohol these days. Exactly. And uh, interestingly, the Greeks uh, were using the alambic to distill essential oils and perfume. Uh, they'd inherited it from the Egyptians. But <clears throat> again, to our knowledge, it was the Irish that really started actually playing around with distilling, you know, fruits and now, granted, it was probably very low-grade alcohol at the time and you know, undoubt, undoubtedly quite rough, probably. But that kind of sent, it was kind of the forefront of, of, I think, what distillation as we know it is today. Interestingly, just to say something funny, I was in uh, Russia a couple of months ago. <clears throat> and because Russia is one of our biggest markets for Kalak in Europe, and somebody asked me during a presentation, they said, oh, Patrick, uh, this is a really good vodka, but, you know, the Russians created vodka. So I'm glad you learned something. <laughs> and this is like a red rag to a bull. I said very, very nicely, and but I think accurately that had it not been for the Irish monks who actually taught us how all how to distill, you wouldn't be distilling vodka today. Exactly. So they kind of took that. I might take this moment just to interject because we do need to thank some of our show sponsors at this point as well. And this episode is brought to you by WD O'Connell Whiskey Merchants. Their PX Series Single Malt Whiskies, which are gently finished in sherry casks. Uh, a different kind of Irish. So follow O'Connell Whiskey across all platforms or visit wdoconnell.com for more details. And of course... What's your treat this week when I enjoy a cologne 10-year-old cast-strength whiskey or a delicious flame-fed pot-stilled puchine? All available online. Check out cologne-distillery.com for more information. And finally, irishmalts.com. Have all the latest and greatest Irish whiskies, gins, and puchines delivered straight to your door. Visit irishmalts.com to browse their full range, which does include the PX series WD O'Connell whiskies, the cologne whiskies, and of course, the Couric whiskies from yourself, Patrick. So one thing I wanted to jump in with was that I'm currently enjoying a lovely Carrick cast strength whiskey here. So for the people who have been following, I suppose, your launch, which seemed very successful, by the way, especially since it kind of launched when we were all starting to be quarantined. There is a, there are, I suppose, more aptly, there was a cast strength version, which I think was 200 or so bottles were released kind of in this market. And then there's the kind of the general release. Can you kind of talk us through how the two of those kind of came to be? Yes. Um, just before I go on to the cast strength, um, I'd just like to maybe remind us of some of the, the kind of the technical descriptions of, of Curac. So, so obviously it's a single malt uh, Irish whiskey. Um, the actual name is Curac Single Malt Irish Whiskey. Atlantic Kombu Seaweed Cask. Um, we bottle at 46% alcohol and it's non-chilled filtered. To come back to the um, cask strength, um, <clears throat> and this is a very emotional, I suppose, release for us. It's not just a cask strength, 
because what we have what we're talking about here is the very cask that we used to experiment. This was the first cask laid down. Um, and our cask strength, what we call is our founder's cask, is uh, bottled at 60% uh, alcohol. Um, it's got a lot of the, the characters that, you know, Kurok has, but with a lot more intensity. It's very much a, I would say, a, you know, a whiskey for people who are collectors or appreciate something that's even more unique. As you said, we only uh, released 200 bottles for the Irish market. From the cask in total, I think we had about 240 bottles. And the other 40 bottles we've used, we've held back, uh, you know, for tastings for certain of our international markets. But the vast majority has been released to Ireland. Is it your first time tasting it tonight, Matt? It is actually. So I, I had the, 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 I suppose, the honor of being given both a cast strength version and the, the 46% version. Uh, and on the original tweet tasting night, I, I imbibed myself upon the 46, but I held on to the cast strength. So this is what I'm literally sipping on uh, in front of you right here. So I started at the very beginning of the podcast quietly, and then I saved half the half the vial for myself on on uh, for this point of the interview. Uh, but by by all means, please tell everyone out in podcast land. I suppose what why I suppose why the cast strength was a little bit different. It was it a actually a a physical was it a single cask or was it simply the kind of the idea of wanting to kind of do that kind of founders cask idea or how did it come about yeah as i said it you know this was the we had a number of test casks on the go with different uh, seaweed varieties this was the first one we ever did and the first one with combo so this is only one cask each bottle is numbered. There's never going to be another release. Uh, this is it. You know, when it's gone, it's gone. So I feel <laughs> sad for emptying my vial now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think what, what, what we love about the cast strength is that this is what inspired us to actually create, a, a, you know, a, a product around it. Uh, this is the actual very cask itself that yeah inspired what we're doing today in in whiskey it's um i don't know what more i can say um well that's okay one of the things i wanted to ask you about is because you you did mention that the official name of the release is Curric single malt irish whiskey kombu cask or kombu atlantic kombu seaweed cask there we go so kind of hinting to me a little bit will there be other editions of Curric utilizing other styles of irish seaweed well as you might have picked up a few minutes ago i i said we had uh, we we actually i think experimented with four different seaweed types i think the idea would be you know certainly in the future we'd like to to give combo some brothers and sisters in the family but uh I think there's two issues here. I think number one, it's still in R&D at the moment. Um, and one thing I'm, 
you know, I'm very strict about is that nothing leaves unless it's it's close to, to perfect or at least our definition of what perfect is. And we can't say that yet because some of them are not even at the three month stage. So it's difficult to, to judge. But I think, I suppose, ultimately, we would uh, we would like to have um, another couple of expressions in the in the future, um, you know, showing again how different seaweeds can bring that element of surprise and difference to the to the spirit to the whiskey, albeit keeping that DNA running running through them. So. Um, yeah, we would certainly like, uh, we can't guarantee that it's going to happen today, um, but, you know, watch the space. Exactly. So just to play a little bit on that, did you do you find, as well as in the bits of R&D you're doing, I'm not saying that they're perfect, but are you finding kind of a differentiation in the flavor coming from the different varietals of, of the seaweed? Absolutely. So they have their own little maritime terroir as well. Everyone is so different, you know, and I, I think that's it's it's surprising, but it's not surprising. You know, I think once you're using a, a product that has so much of its inert kind of character and flavor, as you would in seaweed, it's only normal. You know, I think we've got the process right and the, the technique right of actually bringing that flavor delicately into the wood, which then brings it back into the whiskey. Um, so I think it's only normal that, you know, each each ingredient has its own specific character. That's what's beautiful about it, because it's, you know, it, it shows how, uh, how one can influence the other. And one thing I always like to say about Curac is it's, it's really, it's almost in a romantic sense. It's, 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 I see it as this kind of union of land and sea, of the land and sea meeting, you know, obviously Irish land and sea. So you're getting the, you're getting the flavors and the characters from the malted barley, you know, grown in predominantly the Southeast, distilled in West Cork. Then you're getting the other elements of the seaweed uh, farmed on the West coast of, of Ireland and how these two actually fuse together, I think is, 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 is really interesting. So I was wondering, you were saying that you kind of a large focus on, on Russia and Asia for different, you know, say for Calic and, and Ornabrak. Is that going to be the kind of lead focus for Kirk or are you going to turn more towards the traditional kind of United States market or, or somewhere in between? Um, it's a good question. I think uh, we, we think that, you know, Kirk will, and, and certainly from the feedback we've had from, you know, trusted palates around the world, uh, we I, we feel that it's something that that genuinely does surprise in a, in a positive way. People are really interested in the the innovation and the fact that this is potentially the first whiskey, single malt whiskey ever in the world uh, influenced by seaweed. So. There, I think, first of all, there, there's the quality of the product, I think, which people are quite uniform in anybody who's tasted it, particularly. But then coming back to Asia, you know, I think when you're looking at Asia, you have to understand as well that, number one, single malt has an extremely, an extreme premium perception. So single malt whiskies are extremely popular in, in Asia. 
and, and when I mean Asia, I'm talking about north to southeast. But there's also another element which has become, you know, which is a, a and has been a stable uh, ingredient in the Asian diet for 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 thousands of years, and that is seaweed. You might know yourself, Matt, from going into bars in Hong Kong. You, you don't get a packet of tato put down in front of you in in Tokyo. You might get a bowl of beautifully crafted, uh, cut, uh, dried kombu or other types of dry seaweed. So it just shows that it's it's used as a food ingredient. It's used as a snack. It's used as a principal ingredient for a lot of kind of traditional dishes. So that's why we felt that, and uh, and it's not only that we felt it's we've had really really positive feedback from the Asian markets on those two points because seaweed is something familiar to them. Whiskey, single malt whiskey, is something very familiar to them. So we've we've already shipped our first lot to Singapore. Uh, it'll be arriving in Japan quite soon, and then uh, depending when this situation with COVID nineteen finishes, uh, we probably follow on with three or four minimum other markets. Well, so one thing I was hoping to ask you, and I've, I've kind of a, as a running theme in this podcast series or, or mini podcast series is you know irish whiskey is quite a resilient industry and i was kind of wondering what challenges you're facing in terms of the covid but not just that but kind of how you're kind of overcoming them or or you can see how the industry can overcome them i think it all starts with you know we're all optimists here you know first of all none of us know how long the, the covid situation is going to last but we do know with certainty, with certainty that it will be, be behind us in a year or so. And that's positive in itself because a lot of crises you don't know when you're going to come out. And I think that's what's kept that level of positivity, I think, in general within the trade, not just us. And I think it's, you know, whether we're in crisis or not, not in crisis or post-crisis, I think it all comes down to the product at the, at the end of the day. And if you have a good quality product that speaks to people, that that people can engage with from an authentic point of view, from a flavor point of view, from a provenance point of view, um, I think that's uh, that's something which is very very strong, you know, as a product or a brand asset. The I'm not going to lie. The I think we've been quite affected by uh, the. COVID-19 situation. One could say we probably picked the worst time to launch just a weekend when the whole thing was kicking off. And But, um, you know, this was ready to go. We had orders we, we, we needed to fulfill. And I think in retrospect, knowing what I know now, I think we would have still gone ahead. I'm convinced that uh, once this situation passes, that there's a number of things that could happen. I think one that will happen is that people are going to be, they're going to keep a continued focus on good quality products. And that's not just in Ireland, all over the world. I think this current situation will is probably making people a little bit more sensible to what they're drinking, what they're eating. I think this is going to play quite well in the, in the premium side because it's not all about quantity, you know, first and foremost about quality. So that's why I think you know, Irish whiskies in general, and not just us, I think 
you know, uh, hopefully will continue the, the, the success that they've had over the past uh, decade. There, there is always, you know, uncertainty, uh, you know, particularly with the launch of a new brand. And we, we're, we're not too, we're not long enough out in, into the market. I know you mentioned earlier, we've had, had really positive reviews from, you know, whiskey experts, you know, within the industry and uh, a lot of press, not just in Ireland. Um, but I think what I'm more interested in is like once we get six months a year behind us and when we've actually reached the massive markets we we'd set out to do you know what will we be even more surprised uh, positively than we thought or you know are people actually getting what the product is and that's something we can't say i'm i'm very positive that you know it will be a success and uh, we just hope people i suppose enjoy the the product and enjoy the idea behind it well, I no doubt that in a year's time when we catch back up on another episode of this that we're going to be hearing about a, a very successful launch and I suppose a year for, for Kirk uh, Irish Whiskey. I suppose we're kind of coming to kind of a, a natural end here. Um, if people uh, want to find yourselves online, I suppose the, the Calic, the Ornabrack or, or the Kirk ranges, is there somewhere to be able to look you up? Yeah, well, first of all, they, they can you can always check in on our websites. We don't have a website for Curragh up yet, but uh, there's calacvodka.com, uh, ornabrackgin.com, uh, soon to be curraghwhiskey.com. We're on the three principal social media platforms, our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Again, at calacvodka, at ornabrackgin, and at curraghwhiskey. Um uh, in terms of retailers, our approach has always been, uh, you know, focusing on the the good independents and uh, quality online retailers. So, uh, Curragh can be found in the top independent off licenses in in Ireland. Um, but also, we're also very del- delighted to be working with Irish malts that have both Curragh and the cask strength, and they're doing a really really good job on that. Okay, fantastic. And that's probably a good moment to be able to thank once again our sponsors for, for this podcast series. We do have Cologne Distillery, uh, WD O'Connell, uh, Whiskey Merchants and their, their PX Cask uh, Whiskey Series. And as you mentioned, irishmalts.com. And for everyone listening, if you have enjoyed this podcast episode, do subscribe on your uh, podcast medium of choice. Um, as always, leaving a review, a like, or uh, a comment does help us bump us up the, the podcast ratings to help other whiskey lovers around the world uh, find out about the great words of Irish whiskey. You can find me on potstill.com, on Twitter and Instagram at potstill underscore, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash potstilled. So, Patrick Shelley, I've had an absolutely wonderful time talking to you and imbibing upon your whiskey. Um, So thank you so much for giving your time this evening. Thank you very much, Matt. It was great to be with you.